In our last episode, we explored how after Germany had swept over continental Europe, Britain, under Prime Minister Winston Churchill, refused to give in to Hitler's will. But while the British had spirit to spare, fighters and pilots to fly them were becoming increasingly scarce, and unless things changed, fighter command would be whittled down to defeat. It was only a matter of time. In today's episode, we're going to explore the climax of the Battle of Britain, and how Fighter Command was able to bounce back, seemingly from the dead, to achieve victory. The common narrative of the Battle of Britain is that it was a predominantly defensive affair on the part of the British. However, this is simply not true, for an often overlooked participant was RAF Bomber Command. As it was for Fighter Command, the battle for France had been devastating, with daylight raids especially taking a heavy toll on the bombers, which were savaged by BF-109s. Having retreated back to Britain, It, too, was attempting to rebuild its strength as it prepared to attack the German invasion force when it finally attempted to cross the channel. However, before that, it was decided that they could help ease the pressure on fighter command by taking the battle to the Luftwaffe's own bases in Western Europe. British bombers thus began their own intensive campaign against the Luftwaffe, although their size was barely a drop in the ocean compared to what the Luftwaffe was doing over Britain. In the second week of August alone, RAF bombers carried out 24 raids against German fighter and bomber bases, but it was a difficult and deadly business. Often the bombers flew without any fighter protection, because there simply wasn't any to spare from home defense duties, and so, instead, they attempted to use clouds to hide themselves from the sharp eyes of the German fighter pilots and anti-aircraft gunners. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. On the same day as Göring's Adlertag, 12 British Blenheim 4 bombers of No. 82 Squadron lifted off from RAF Watton in Norfolk, their target being the German-held airfield of Aalborg in occupied Denmark. The Blenheim was at that time the backbone of Bomber Command, and was one of the fastest bombers in the world in the years leading up to the outbreak of the war. But over France, it had proven extremely vulnerable to the BF-109. Not long into the fight, one of the Blenheims was forced to turn back due to its engines burning an unusually high amount of fuel, which would have left it unable to return to base if it continued. The remaining 11 aircraft continued on over the North Sea to Denmark, where they learned that flying over the featureless body of water, they had strayed some 55 kilometers south of where they should have been, and that instead of thick clouds to conceal them, the sky was largely clear. The force pressed on and made their attack in two groups, the first successfully penetrating Alborg's screen of anti-aircraft guns to drop their bombs, but the second group was decimated by them, all five aircraft being shot down on their approach, with only five of the 15 British flyers escaping their doomed aircraft. However, the slaughter was not over, for as the first wave turned for home, they were set upon by BF-109s, which proceeded to cut them down one after the other. 
Only one Blenheim made it back to the coast, where its German pursuers gave up their chase and headed home. However, the Blenheim had been damaged so severely that its crew realized they would never make it back to the British Isles, and so rather than ditch in the North Sea, they turned back to Denmark, where they bailed out and surrendered to the Germans. As well as directly targeting the Luftwaffe, Bomber Command also carried out raids against strategically important targets in the occupied lands and Germany itself, such as oil refineries and storage facilities. As well as disrupting German operations, these raids helped tie up the Luftwaffe's fighter force and during the most intensive phases, deprived them of rest. As Hitler's force of invasion barges began to be assembled, these too became targets for the RAF Bomber Command, which greatly upset the Führer's plan for invasion but it did come at a heavy cost in personnel. With each bomber having a crew of three to five, depending on the type, Bomber Command would lose 718 aircrew flying in support of the Battle of Britain, more than even Fighter Command would lose. While Goering may not have appreciated Fighter Command's true strength by the middle of August, the truth was that despite the spirited resistance that Dowding's men and women were still giving the Luftwaffe, the force was slowly bleeding to death as the battle continued. By mid-August, Fighter Command had lost 181 fighters in combat with the Luftwaffe, with another 30 destroyed on the ground. Even more painful was the loss of 151 pilots. To offset these losses, Fighter Command had received 170 new aircraft, but only 63 trained up new pilots who barely had time to familiarize themselves with the high-performance hurricanes and spitfires before they were thrust into the fight against experienced and skilled German aces. As day three of Goering's offensive dawned, the personnel of Fighter Command were greeted by fine weather and knew that the Luftwaffe would not miss this opportunity. What they didn't know was just how large a force they would have to deal with. In all, Goering planned to use three of his air fleets, totaling 2,400 aircraft, in coordinated attacks against Great Britain, with bombers from occupied Norway attacking targets in the north of England. He was so convinced that the last of Fighter Command's strength was concentrated in the southeast that the northern force took off without escorts, expecting to fly in unopposed. At 1130 hours, the Germans began their attacks in the south with formations of Ju-87 Stukas escorted by Bf-109s, striking at several RAF bases, as well as additional attacks on radar stations. A massive hole had again been punched in Fighter Command's radar coverage along the Kent coast, through which the German armada began pouring in on their way to their targets. Only the Royal Observer Corps were left to attract them. At midday, Radar in the north of England detected the incoming German bombers from Norway, and Fighter Command's number 13 group, which had responsibility for the region, began scrambling fighters. In almost perfect weather, the unescorted bombers found themselves under attack by Spitfires of number 72 squadron, diving at them from out of the sun. Two hurricane squadrons quickly joined the fights, and the German bombers were massacred, 30 of their number being taken out, and many more badly damaged, forcing them to ditch their bombs and try to escape back across the North Sea. Further south, however, things were going from bad to worse for Number 11 Group as the Luftwaffe stepped up its attack. The Royal Observer Corps frantically scanned the skies with binoculars for German aircraft, but they can only spot them if they're flying within a few miles of their position, 
significantly reducing the warning time for Dowding's fighter controllers to scramble aircraft. Facing numbers unlike anything seen before, the British pilots were soon locked in a desperate battle to break through swarms of escorting BF-109s and BF-110s in order to reach the bombers, but it was nearly an impossible task, and the airfields at Rochester and Eastchurch took heavy punishments. Further west, 20 fighters of No. 10 Group were left to take on no less than 125 German aircraft. The British fighters put up a good showing of themselves, knocking out three BF-110s and damaging several others, but the odds were squarely against them, resulting in six being shot down. As the early evening approached, the exhausted RAF pilots were still fending off German attacks, with RAF Biggin Hill and Croydon being bombed at 1,850 hours. Without radar giving them advanced warning, they had barely minutes to get airborne after the attackers were first spotted, just 12 miles away. During the attack on the airfield at Croydon, a BF-110 was hit and eventually crashed into a perfume factory, killing 60 civilians. As the battles raged on, Dowding had been joined by Churchill at Uxbridge, so the Prime Minister could view the situation for himself firsthand. The news was not good. Fighter Command had taken its biggest beating so far, with operations at five key airfields either having been disrupted or stopped altogether to allow for repairs, and radar coverage was still patchy in some areas. Fighter Command had brought down 59 German planes and disrupted the success of countless others, but had lost 26 aircraft and, even more seriously, 13 trained pilots. If the Germans kept up this level of pressure, defeat was inevitable. Fighter Command would make the Germans pay dearly for their victory, that was certain, but the Luftwaffe would win. The following morning, on August 16th, the weather had turned, delaying the Luftwaffe from taking off until close to midday. Again, the Luftwaffe hit out at airfields in the southeast, as well as radar stations such as Ventnor, which had only just been made operational again after the damage it had sustained on August 12th. Flying a hurricane over the Solent that day was one Flight Lieutenant Eric James Nicholson of No. 249 Squadron. Spotting a trio of Stukas, he dived in to attack, but lost sight of his targets through the clouds, reacquiring them again thanks to a formation of Spitfires attacking another group nearby. Unbeknownst to him, however, he was himself in the sights of a BF-110, which proceeded to fire a burst of cannon fire into his aircraft, destroying the canopy around him and leaving a bleeding wound from his head. Partially blinded by both the blood running down his face and the rush of freezing cold air into his exposed cockpit, he felt his aircraft struck again as bullets tore into his leg and ignited his fuel tank. Rapidly losing speed, he tried in vain to escape the pursuing German fighter when the now much faster BF-110 overshot him. Ignoring his desperate situation, Nicholson straightened his almost crippled hurricane and dived in pursuit of the German heavy fighter. He got to within 200 yards, and despite being engulfed in flames and smoke, he aimed steady and squeezed the firing button for all it was worth. Hit with the full fury of Nicholson's Brownings, the 110 was quickly engulfed in smoke before turning on its side and entering into a death dive. Having bailed out of his fighter, the wounded and semi-conscious pilot fell 5,000 feet before he realized he hadn't pulled the ripcord on his parachute, opening it just in time to give him a fairly soft landing. Sadly, his ordeal was not over, for members of the local home guard thought he was in fact the pilot of the BF-110 he had just shot down, and shot him rather unceremoniously in the buttocks before they realized their mistake. After being taken to hospital, 
A memento of just how close he had come to death that day was sitting on his wrist, for the flames from his burning hurricane had got so close to him that they had melted the glass on the face of his wristwatch. For his extraordinary gallantry and dedication to duty, Nicholson was awarded the Victoria Cross, Britain's highest award for valor, and incredibly, the only one issued to a fighter command pilot during the entire Battle of Britain. Despite his injuries, Nicholson would eventually return to flying and would see extensive combat in the Far East against the Japanese, until a bomber he was flying aboard crashed in the Bay of Bengal on May 2nd, 1945. Nearing the end of the day, the Luftwaffe were reminded just how far the British seemed willing to go to defend their island, when a German bomber was rammed by the pilot of an unarmed Avro Anson trainer. After another hectic day of combat, the scores were still in favor of the RAF, but a great deal of damage had been done. Fortunately, the deteriorating weather offered both sides a brief respite, something Dowding needed every precious second of desperately. As the attacks continued, a terrible toll was being inflicted on fighter commands, both materially and psychologically, but the worst was yet to come. On Sunday the 18th of August, the Luftwaffe launched three consecutive raids against the airfields at Kenley, Biggin Hill, Gosport, Ford, Thorny Island, Hornchurch, and North Weald. The combat was fierce, even by the previous day's standards, and RAF fighters downed 69 German planes, at the cost of 31 of their own, and an additional 37 destroyed on the ground, as well as heavy damage being inflicted upon Fighter Command's infrastructure. It was the heaviest damage inflicted upon Dowding's command in the battle on a single day, leading the RAF to remember it as the hardest day. Having seen Fighter Command's valiant efforts for himself, Churchill had been visibly moved by their dedication to duty, and in a speech honoring them on August 20th, he uttered the now immortal words. Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Across the channel, however, the tone was quite different. Goering was furious with the results of his grand offensive. By this point, fighter command should have been dead, and yet every German plane that ventured out towards southern England was under near constant attack. It was unthinkable to Goering that his plans were faulty, and so he did one of the worst things he could possibly do at such a crucial time in the battle, and turned on his own increasingly demoralized men, accusing them of lacking the aggression necessary to win the fight against the British. His pilots attempted to rebuff his criticisms, pointing out many of the problems they faced, The BF-109, for example, for all its performance, was too short-legged to escort the longer-ranged bombers all the way to their targets and have fuel for battling British fighters. As if on the flip side of this problem, the twin-engined BF-110 had ample range and firepower for the job, but was hopelessly outclassed in a one-on-one dogfight with a hurricane or Spitfire. The famed Stukas had also proven worryingly vulnerable, being too slow to escape British defences, meaning they too required heavy fighter protection to be successful. Another crucial disadvantage facing the Germans was also becoming readily apparent by this time. If a British pilot was shot down over Britain, or even in the Channel where seaplanes and high-speed boats could rescue him, he could be flying again by that very afternoon. For the Luftwaffe, every plane or aircrew shot down was lost, as those who bailed out were inevitably taken prisoner. This meant that the Luftwaffe were losing significantly higher numbers of experienced pilots than the British, severely sapping the German mission's generation rates. 
Many Luftwaffe fighter pilots felt that the answer was to change tactics. Legendary fighter ace Adolf Galland, for example, wanted the fighters to take a more aggressive role against fighter command, instead of being tied to the bombers, but Goering insisted that they stay as close to them as possible. During one heated exchange between the two men, when Goering asked him what he needed in order to win the Battle of Britain, he replied flippantly, I should like an outfit of Spitfires for my group. Contrary to popular belief, Galland didn't make this remark because he believed the Spitfire was the superior aircraft to his BF-109, but rather to simply express his frustration with Goering, who was reportedly so incensed he was left uncharacteristically speechless. Having become a superpower in the age of its empire, Britain may have been alone in Europe in the summer of 1940, but it was by no means alone on the global stage. Still under the British crown, pilots from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Rhodesia, and South Africa, among others, flocked to join fighter command in defense of the empire's home island. Some of the highest scoring RAF aces during the battle hailed from these countries, perhaps most notably South African Adolf Sailor Milan, who commanded number 74 squadron, which quickly gained elite status under his leadership. Even though relations with Britain and Southern Ireland were still strained at this point regarding Irish independence, many Irishmen felt that Nazi Germany was the biggest threat to Irish freedom in the future, and so joined up with the British armed forces, despite Southern Ireland being officially a neutral party. One Irish citizen, Brendan Paddy Funnikan, quickly proved himself extremely skilled in combat and became the youngest wing commander in the RAF, aged just 21, before tragically being killed in combat in 1942, after downing 32 German planes. Probably the most celebrated non-British pilots of the Battle of Britain were the American volunteers, who would eventually go on to form the famed Eagle Squadrons. Like Ireland, the neutral United States couldn't formally send anyone to fight with the British, but that didn't stop numerous men going to Canada and lying to authorities there, claiming to be Canadian citizens in order to join up, bureaucracy not being as tight as it is today. Eventually, anti-fascist businessmen in the United States established and financed an underground movement to ship willing volunteers across the Atlantic to join the RAF, even at the risk of losing their American citizenship if discovered. The German victory on the continent also saw a number of pilots flee their fallen countries, hoping to continue the fight with the RAF. Pilots from Belgium, Czechoslovakia, and France all fought in the Battle of Britain but it was the pilots of Poland who would earn the greatest admiration of their British hosts. Some 35,000 Poles had escaped German occupation, sometimes on numerous occasions as the countries they fled to fell, to arrive in Britain in 1940, going on to serve in all branches of the British armed forces. In the RAF, Polish pilots arrived with first-hand combat experience of fighting the Germans, and many of them were already aces, having downed more than five German planes in the defense of their homeland. Yet despite this, their value was not initially fully appreciated, even by the otherwise pragmatic Dowding. It did not help that the Polish pilots had problems understanding English instructions over the radio, or that many of them found it difficult to adapt to flying the high-performance hurricane compared to the biplanes they were used to. More than one Polish pilot tried to land without lowering their wheels, being used to fixed undercarriages. Nevertheless, 
Having witnessed firsthand the horrors of German occupation, the Polish pilots rose to the challenge, determined to prove themselves to the RAF. Two Polish fighter squadrons were formed, namely number 302 and number 303 squadrons, and once they were unleashed upon the enemy, they quickly forged themselves a fearsome reputation. Number 303 squadron especially would go on to knock down 126 German planes, the highest number of any hurricane unit of the battle, while Polish pilot Anton Glowacki would achieve the extraordinary feat of knocking down five German planes in one day. Only one other RAF pilot would achieve the same, New Zealander Brian Carberry. One of the more colourful characters who flew with number 303 squadron was Jan Zumbach. Escaping Poland via Romania, he enlisted in the French Air Force, but saw little action before escaping the Nazis a second time and making it to the UK, where he was accepted into the Polish squadron. During the intense fighting of the Battle of Britain, Zumbach's supply of luck never seemed to run out, even when his aircraft was hit in combat over the channel and he was forced to bail out. Dazed and disoriented, as he floated down toward a nearby beach in his parachute, he feared he was landing on the French side of the channel and would soon be taken prisoner. It was only as he stood up on the sand and unclipped his parachute that he saw a group of British soldiers approaching him and he knew he was on British soil. However, as he went to walk towards them, one of the soldiers fired a shot into the sand in front of him. Stunned, Zumbach threw his hands into the air and tried to shout to them that he was a Polish pilot with the RAF, but every time he tried to move closer so they could hear him, the soldiers would fire another shot into the sand. Standing still, he waited for one of the soldiers to approach him and was perplexed by the man's strange sideways movements, leading the Pole to think the soldier was drunk. It was only as the two men got within earshot that the British soldier apologized for shooting and assured him that he wasn't aiming for the downed pilot. An angry Zumbach then demanded an explanation, and the British soldier told him that it was to stop him from moving before they could get to him. The soldier then explained why he had to do this. Zumbach had landed right in the middle of a minefield. After a brief lull due to the weather, the Luftwaffe was soon back in action, attacking Fighter Command's bases in the southeast. However, the intensity of the attacks had dropped off significantly. Furthermore, Goering continued to send his bomber fleets out to attack targets across the British Isles, which had questionable value in the immediate battle, including North and Southwest England, South Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Night raids by the Luftwaffe also increased in frequency, attacking industrial targets in and around numerous cities, something the RAF was at this time poorly equipped to repel. Having now missed one deadline for the Führer and a second one fast approaching, on August 23, 1940, Goering issued a directive to the Luftwaffe, which he hoped would encourage them to rise to the challenge and finish off the RAF. The directive read, To continue the fight against the enemy air force until further notice, with the aim of weakening the British fighter forces, the enemy is to be forced to use his fighters by means of ceaseless attacks. In addition, the aircraft industry and the ground organization of the Air Force are to be attacked by means of individual aircraft by night and day, if weather conditions do not permit the use of complete formations. The next day, on Saturday, August 24th, an event took place that would dramatically change the course of the Battle of Britain. A flight of Luftwaffe bombers were dispatched to attack the Shorts Brothers Aircraft Factory in Rochester, 
but navigating at night was still unperfected by all sides at this time. They were relieved, therefore, when in the low light they spotted the River Medway, which they knew would lead them to their target, and after following it a short distance, they unleashed their deadly cargo as they came under fire before turning for home. Unfortunately, however, the river they had been following was not Medway. It was the Thames, and they had followed it into London itself, and instead of an aircraft factory, the bombs killed innocent civilians in Millwall, Tottenham, and Islington. Churchill was outraged, but he was not the only one, for both Goering and Hitler were furious, since Luftwaffe pilots had been strictly forbidden from attacking the British capital. The next day, Churchill convened his cabinet, where he proposed striking back at Berlin, and that night, the order went out for Bomber Command to head to the German capital. Since that fateful night, historians have argued whether or not Churchill knew the bombing was a mistake. At the time, he seemed convinced the attack was deliberate, a shift towards German terror bombing of British cities, but the evidence suggested otherwise. There were no follow-up attacks the next day, and while he met with his cabinet, Luftwaffe bombers again struck RAF Fighter Command's bases, implying the bombing was unintentional, yet Churchill was determined to strike back. On August 25th, 1940, 81 RAF Bomber Command Handley Page Hamden and Vickers Wellington bombers took off into the night and flew east over the continent and into Germany. The aircraft were flying at the extreme of their ranges, and like the German bombers that had instigated Churchill's order, navigation at night over such a long distance was anything but an exact science. About half the force sent out found their targets and began raining bombs down on the capital, one of which struck Berlin Zoo, killing their only elephant. Hitler was enraged by the attack and was furious with Goering, who had promised that no British bomber would ever reach Berlin. But in a remarkable show of restraint for the Nazi Fuhrer, he didn't immediately order a reprisal, instead allowing Goering's bombers to keep targeting British airfields and infrastructure, supporting fighter command. Churchill, meanwhile, ordered more attacks against the German capital, pushing Hitler's patience to the limits until he could take no more and ordered the Luftwaffe to change tactics. Speaking on September 4th, 1940, he said regarding his restraint, Mr. Churchill has taken this to be a sign of our weakness. You will understand that we shall now give a reply night for night and with increasing force. On September 7th, Fighter Command's radar stations detected another German force of nearly 400 bombers and 600 fighters building up over the channel. But as the Spitfires and Hurricanes scrambled to get airborne to protect their heavily damaged bases, they were surprised to discover that their target was the British capital. This was the start of what Londoners and the world over would forever remember afterwards as the Blitz. Operating under the relatively simple codename of Operation London, The German bomber crews concentrated their initial attacks around London's docks, destroying over 100,000 tons of goods and shipping while killing over 400 civilians. Fighter Command's pilots, being ready once again to fight it out in the defense of their bases, were caught almost totally off guard by the raid and quickly scrambled to reorganize themselves to defend London. The bombing continued on into the night, leading US news correspondent Ernie Pyle to describe the scene to American audiences as the city being ringed and stabbed with fire. More attacks came in the days that followed, with other cities also taking a battering from German bombers, but London bore the brunt of the attack. Dowding and his group commanders were perplexed by the change of strategy from the Germans. 
Fighter Command was still operational, but its infrastructure had been heavily damaged by the repeated raids. Without that support, inevitably Britain's fighter fleets would start wearing down until they had to abandon the southeastern bases and retreat northwards, exactly what Goering's goal had been. Now, with London under attack, the bases could be repaired, the infrastructure re-established, and furthermore, Lord Beaverbrook's manufacturing plan was at last beginning to bear fruit, with new planes being produced at a faster rate than they were being lost. The answer was simple, and it reflected once again the Luftwaffe's biggest problem, intelligence. Goering was convinced that now, finally, the RAF was on its knees, and both he and Hitler believed that attacking London might lure the last RAF fighters into action where they could be destroyed. Furthermore, the sustained bombing of the capital might so badly demoralize the British people that when Sea Lion finally went ahead, they would be screaming for Churchill to make peace. In almost every aspect of this change in strategy, the Nazi leadership would be proven wrong. Day after day, night after night, German bombers rained down their deadly loads onto British cities for a punishing 56 out of 57 days, while at the same time, Fighter Command wasted no time rebuilding. Squadrons were also now beginning to receive improved models of both the Hurricane and Spitfire, with more powerful Merlin engines, and some sporting much heavier armaments, making them all the more lethal in combat. The fact of the matter was that in order to save Fighter Command, London and other British cities were going to have to burn, and rather than the citizens of those cities crying out for surrender, as Hitler expected, they were instead crying out another word. Revenge. With British fighter opposition seemingly increasing as the Blitz ramped up, Hitler had no choice but to, once again, postpone Operation Sea Lion until mid-September. Preparations for the invasion had further been hampered by a growing number of attacks on the assembled barges and ships by RAF aircraft. Everyone in the German High Command knew that any further postponement would be all but impossible, as already the weather was worsening in the Channel. If victory wasn't achieved soon, then all would be lost. The day that would decide the destiny of Europe would arrive on September 15, 1940. That morning, Churchill was passing RAF Uxbridge with his wife and decided to make an impromptu visit to get an idea of what was going on. He wouldn't have to wait long for news of an upcoming raid, as the chain home radars soon began picking up German formations heading for Dover and the Thames estuary. But just as the RAF fighters were about to engage, the Germans turned tail and headed for home, their attack seemingly having been called off. Further west, however, a lone reconnaissance German plane was detected and successfully shot down by a hurricane. As the morning wore on, more and more contacts were being detected by chain home radar stations, and Churchill sensed that the Germans were planning something big, which he relayed to Air Chief Marshal Sir Keith Park, number 11 Group's commanding officer. Park simply replied to Churchill, and we are ready for them. After a formation of 200 German bombers were picked up crossing the channel, along with a heavy fighter escort, Park began scrambling his squadrons. The German force was spread out along a two-mile stretch of sky, just north of Dungeness to the south of Dover. Given the size of the escorting fighter force, Park requested additional support from Number 12 Group before his planes attacked at midday, engaging them between Maidstone in Kent and the southern tip of London. 
The fighting was particularly fierce. Spitfires surged into the escorting fighter formations first, breaking them up and engaging them, creating a hole for the Hurricanes to go in and wreak havoc with the German bombers. During the clash, Hurricane pilot Sergeant R.T. Holmes attacked a formation of three DO-17s, knocking down two of them before his aircraft was hit, forcing him to bail out. Reinforcements from Number 12 Group were soon getting mixed in with the Germans. Among them was famed British ace Douglas Bader, who had lost his legs in a flying accident before the war and flew with prosthetics. The German formations were soon losing their cohesion, allowing the British to apply pressure on groups at a time, inflicting a great deal of damage upon them as they found themselves without the protection of their comrades. The situation was made worse for the Germans, as BF-109s began to turn back, having burned their remaining fuel tangling with the Spitfires. As the German bombers began flying over London, they had been so badly mauled and their plan of attack so upset by the British fighters that they were spread out across 38 miles of sky, making them more manageable for the British defenders, who were now striking without mercy. Many German bombers ditched their loads regardless of location upon sighting attacking Spitfires and Hurricanes in order to attempt to make a run for home. The raid was nothing short of a disaster for the Luftwaffe, but the day wasn't over yet. As the morning raiders limped back to their bases, British radar was already detecting a follow-up attack forming over France. There was now a race to get the RAF fighters back to their bases to rearm and refuel, something that would take fighter command up to two hours to complete if they were to return to the morning's readiness. Meanwhile, radar monitored the German bombers break up into three distinct groups before beginning to cross the channel, where the Royal Observer Corps reported another 200 bombers and twice as many fighters. Once again, fighter command took on the escorts first in an effort to punch a hole in the bombers' defensive screen. Over the English county of Kent, the two sides engaged one another in the now daily practice of brutal and bloody aerial combat. Almost replicating the morning's battle, it was not long before the climbing, turning and diving in combat emptied the 109's fuel tanks, leaving only the clumsy BF-110s and the defensive gunners on the bombers to ward off the high-speed and heavily armed British fighters. The Polish pilots of Number 303 Squadron had an especially good day, their hurricanes destroying three bombers, two BF-110s and a BF-109. By mid-afternoon, the remaining German bombers were turning back across the channel, having unleashed their loads on targets in and around London. Such was the raw hatred by this point in the battle with the Germans, that even crippled bombers attempting to flee back to the continent were set upon by the RAF fighters to make sure they didn't make a return trip. In the evening, a third but significantly smaller German raid was carried out against Portland in Dorset, while BF-110s used the time when the British fighters were rearming to carry out a sneak attack on the aircraft factory at Wollstone. At British bases across the south of England, exhausted pilots rested wherever they could lay down, while ground crews worked frantically on their fighters to patch bullet holes, fix leaks, and repair damaged controls and instruments. Following the reprieve it had been given by the Blitz, Fighter Command had not only been rebuilt to full strength, but was now growing past its size at the start of the battle. As a result, with more fighters to throw at the Germans, the day's actions had seen the most intense air combat of the war thus far. In the chaos of the fight, estimations of how many German planes had been shot down went wildly out of control. 
leading to the RAF claiming it had downed 175 German planes. In reality, the figure was 60, but countless more had been damaged, while the RAF themselves had lost 25 planes, with 13 pilots being killed. However, while the actual count was not as initially thought, few people in Britain or anywhere in the world could have anticipated that night just how big a victory the RAF had achieved that day. Goering was forced to report back to Hitler that his air force had not only failed to destroy fighter command, but his bombers were now facing ever stiffer opposition, which had left even the aircraft that returned to their base in need of lengthy repairs, while hundreds of his airmen were sporting wounds. Given the day's events, Goering was now having to consider continuing the Blitz as an almost exclusively nighttime affair in order to spare his bomber fleet, which, while it would continue to instill fear in the British population, seriously hampered the Luftwaffe's ability to hit specific military targets. With Goering's Luftwaffe having failed him, and attacks on his invasion barges and ships by RAF planes increasing, Hitler found himself with little choices left. On September 17, 1940, he postponed Operation Sea Lion once again, only this time indefinitely. Already he had begun losing interest in the war against Britain, and was now quietly drawing up his plans for his grand campaign against the one enemy he so desperately wanted to destroy, the Soviet Union. The Battle of Britain was not strictly over, and would continue on for another month, but thanks to the hard-earned success of Fighter Command, particularly on September 15th, the fight for Britain's continued survival, at least, had been won. By the beginning of October 1940, the Luftwaffe's daylight operations over Great Britain began to taper off considerably, partly due to the impact of the worsening weather as autumn took hold, and partly to spare Goering's bombers that still continued to pound London and other British cities under the protection of night. BF 109s and 110s continued to harry British fighters whenever they could, either by attacking them over the channel or by launching high-speed, low-altitude attacks on British airfields, a tactic which made them difficult to detect on radar and kept British pilots and anti-aircraft gunners firmly on their toes. Strangely, it was at this late hour that a new force entered the fray in support of the Luftwaffe. On October 29th, members of the Royal Observer Corps and anti-aircraft gunners situated around Ramsgate in Kent began reporting unusual aircraft flying overhead, and it was soon discovered that these were Italian warplanes dispatched by Hitler's ally, Mussolini. The Italians had already conducted a nighttime raid on Felix Stowe and Harwich five days earlier, this having initially been credited to the Luftwaffe. Flying from Belgium, the small Italian contingent was not welcomed with open arms by their Luftwaffe allies, many of whom had been through hell in the preceding months. Nor were the Luftwaffe crews impressed with the Italians' equipment, which even included Fiat CR-42 biplane fighters, while only a handful of bombers were equipped with a radio. Furthermore, the Italian aircraft flew with their own tactics, which proved hopelessly obsolete against the British who were left befuddled as to why the Italians had shown up in this state given the German experiences in the summer. In reality, the Italian force sent to Belgium was more of a propaganda tool than anything else. It allowed Hitler and Mussolini to present a united front against the British, particularly as Italian troops had now begun their campaign against British possessions in North Africa. It also allowed Mussolini to claim that his bombers were getting revenge for British air raids, 
carried out against his forces in the Mediterranean, but the Italians' effectiveness was woeful. Precisely when the Battle of Britain ended is still debated by some historians, but most agree that it came with the end of October, although daylight attacks still continued sporadically after this point. In fact, German hit-and-run raids by Luftwaffe fighters flying low and fast would be a consistent threat to British bases until the D-Day landings in June of 1944, when the German bases would be overrun by Allied troops. The Blitz, meanwhile, would continue to savage British cities well into 1940, where night-after-night bombs rained down upon them, destroying factories, homes, and many of Britain's historic buildings, with even Buckingham Palace taking a hit. Churchill and King George VI regularly toured bomb sites, helping to keep morale up amongst the people, leading to the so-called Spirit of the Blitz, the defiant notion that Britain could not only take it, but would carry on regardless of what Hitler threw at them. It was precisely the opposite of what the Fuhrer had intended, but worse than that for the Nazi regime, Bomber Command was now the branch of the RAF getting the lion's share of resources to build newer, better, and bigger bombers, culminating in the Avro Lancaster, an aircraft often labelled as Bomber Command's Spitfire. Unlike the German bombers, which were primarily designed for tactical operations in support of the Wehrmacht, Britain's new four-engine bombers were true strategic weapons, having the range and warloads to inflict much greater damage on German cities, many of which would be obliterated in 1,000 bomber raids by the RAF and eventually the American Air Forces. But while the war in the air could be claimed to have turned in the RAF's favour at the close of 1940, Britain was still in great peril, but instead of the skies, the threat came from under the sea. Being a comparatively small island nation, Britain's resources were of course finite, and in order to stay alive, the country relied heavily on the supplies brought in by its convoys. These convoys were forever at risk from Hitler's U-boat fleets, who attacked without warning and without mercy. Britain was now under siege, and would remain so for the rest of the war. It is impossible to overestimate just how pivotal British victory in the Battle of Britain was to the story of World War II, and how differently things would have gone had the Germans realised their many mistakes earlier. If Britain had fallen, then when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, there would have been no Arctic convoys bringing weapons to the Soviets to keep them in the fight, while they relocated their arms manufacturing base east, away from German bombers. With Britain out of the fight, Hitler may not have declared war against America in December of 1941 in support of Japan, instead leaving Washington and Tokyo to fight it out amongst themselves, since part of his reasoning for the declaration was that America had violated its neutrality by supporting London. Without the support from home, Britain's empire would likely have been carved up by the Axis, with Japan receiving India, while Mussolini's troops, probably still supported by Germany, would conquer North Africa and Greece. Victory in the Battle of Britain meant that a world where fascism infected Europe, Asia, North Africa, the Middle East, and maybe even beyond, would thankfully never come to fruition. 